Alafia, Alafia, welcome, welcome. Come on in, come on in. The fire is a hot. The water is a boiling. It's time to put something in the pot. Greetings and Come back home to Africa. Come back 
I had to mute y'all because I'm getting feedback. But you're good. I'll unmute your mic um, when we're ready. Thank you all for being present this special day. I'm truly honored and grateful. Any day that you all take time out of the middle of your day, your schedule, to be present in this shared sacred space with us. Divine all blessed greetings and salutation, elevation, revelations and manifestation on this very special day. You are now sitting live with Pan-African spiritualist, practitioner, author, and advisor, Elagun Oloye Hudu Obeya Bokor, sharing with you in all things spiritual, mystical, metaphysical, cosmic, evolutionary, revolutionary, healing, and holistic from a Pan-African Hudu world spiritualist perspective, understanding that all is truly and indeed a blessing. If you can just see beyond the veil, for it is all just an illusion and a test and one of the greatest divine mysteries of this life cycle. This is indeed my constant prayer, my mantra, affirmation, reverberation, reiteration, and it is my ever-living reality. All is a blessing is crucial to the very foundation of my inner standing, my teaching, my walk, my work, my demonstration along this divine, all-blessed life path and journey. It is how I, the divine prince, make sense out of all that we're challenged with here in this daily existence on Mother Father Earth. And it is my personal place of power and understanding, the place from where I begin, the place from where I realize and crystallize all my endeavors, understanding that I and I alone create and co-create my divine destiny, and I and I alone create and co-create my divine all-blessed reality, and so it is. Ashe. Greetings again, one and all, everyone, both my Blog Talk Radio listeners at 845-277-9143. My Blog Talk Radio listeners who are listening from the show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash the hyphen divine hyphen prince. And, of course, I welcome my Facebook, my Twitter, my Periscope, my EarthCam, my StreamYard, my cousins and my co-hosts, and everyone that's present here with us now in this shared sacred space. We want to acknowledge today, May 31st, twenty. 21. For some of you, it's Memorial Day. For many, it's Commemoration Day. For others, it's Decoration Day. And indeed, we're going to talk a little bit more today about ancestral veneration. But as always, I want to sort of give it a context. <laughs> How many of you watched the Tulsa burning 
documentary on History Channel. If you haven't, it's something you've really got to see. Uh, so far, the documentary, documentary in its entirety um, is not available anywhere else. Not that I'm aware of. It, it could be on Amazon. I haven't really checked yet. But I watched it first last night on Hulu um, on the History Channel. It's called A Documentary Event from executive producer Russell Westbrook, directed by Stanley Nelson and Marco Williams, called Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre. Now, you might be wondering, well, why is he tying that and ancestral veneration together? First and foremost, who are your ancestors? Who are they? It's very popular right now. It's very faddish right now to say, I acknowledge the ancestors, all hail to the ancestors. I bow before the ancestors. But, but my godchildren, my clients, my initiates know that we ask, who are they? Exactly who are they? And for many of us, descendants of the Middle Passage, it's a complicated response. When looking at Tulsa's burning, they do have on YouTube the History Channel, Tulsa burning, the 1921 race massacre, the creators in conversation. So a few of the, uh, the producer, director, and I believe one of the descendants, you know, grandchildren or great-grandchildren of, uh, are in the uh, hour-long presentation that I showed just before the show. And again, it's called The History Channel, Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre, Creators in Conversation. And this opened up wow, this opened up whole new worlds of questions and information for me. After watching it, and watching it twice, by the way, um, and then the third time I fell asleep on it, uh, it really made me think about how lynching, because this is really an act of terrorism, a a massive act of, of lynching, and how lynching has been used historically to silence us, to dehumanize us, to strip us of any sense of power or control, to keep us in our place. And quite often, our self-employed, our entrepreneurs, our successful vendors, our resources were targeted more often than not in in these acts of lynching. Let's understand, it it was never about whistling at the white woman. It was never about making the pass at at the white woman. It was never about, you know, being disrespectful, you know, in the face uh, of some, some powerful white man. It was often about control, and particularly control of economics, control of land. And Tulsa burning is, is really popular and, is, and, and prevalent right now uh, because they are celebrating the 100-year uh, commemoration of this Tulsa burning. So you'll find many documentaries about it. You'll find many conversations going on about it actively right now. But again, it made me think about all the black enclaves in America. Because we have a thing of of heightening and sensationalizing particular events, particularly now in the day of of digital media, where we can, you know, record and videotape and and take pictures. and, And many of the present modern-day lynchings that have been taking place on black and and brown uh, lives are are documented in in film. But think about the many that go undocumented. 
the many that go unacknowledged directly. And the family, many of our families, sit in pain, sit in trauma, sit in silence. After watching Tulsa Burning, um, I called my mama. You know, my mother grew up in a historic black enclave. My grandparents, my mother's grandparents, built their house, two houses on the same property, you know, had position, had a little bit of power in their town, uh, had the respect that many black families, and I'm sure many of the black families in, in Tulsa had grown accustomed to. Understand this indigenous land, because originally it was indigenous land, and then black people began to move there, and, and it became a very powerful black enclave. And we think about, uh, um, and I'm hoping my cousin has a little bit of history, you know, to add to this. Uh, when we think about Oklahoma City, you know, or, or Tulsa burning, often we don't understand that there were many, at least a dozen or more, black communities surrounding Oklahoma City, surrounding Tulsa, that um, were prominent for home ownership, for owning all the businesses. Because remember now, we're talking about Jim Crow. We're talking about the season of lynching. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And so we couldn't shop at the white man's store. We couldn't interact and do business, you know, at, at the white store. So we had to have our own businesses. And Oklahoma presented at that time sort of a free man's land, if you will, where it was well known throughout the country that black people could go there and be autonomous and be independent and be successful and to somewhat be free of sort of the much more negative uh, terroristic activities that were going on in, in other parts of the country. So let's look at timing. The Tulsa burning incident, the, the massacre and terrorist attack on our community happened in 1921. That's a year before my mother's mother was born, a year before my maternal grandmother was born. She was born in 1922. I have done some research on lynching throughout the country, uh, and particularly timing, location, date. And so some of the highest numbers of, of lynching happened from 1900 onward until the present day. So when I think about 1921, there were 64 lynchings in 1921. There were six, 61 lynchings in 1921. There were 64 lynchings in 19... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm giving it to you wrong. There were 61 lynchings in 1920. There were 64 lynchings in 1921. There were 57 lynchings in 1922, 33 lynchings in 1923. And, and not only, you know, is Tulsa an important date for me personally, but my grandmother and her subsequent three sisters were all born in this time period. And the black enclave that my maternal grandmother, uh, her parents built a house and were a part of a powerful community in was known as Kirkwood, Missouri, and particularly Meacham Park, Missouri. Now, you can't find Meacham Park on a map today. It's now an industrial park, a parking lot, and attached to a shopping mall. And so when we think of places like Rosewood, 
another large footprint of terroristic attacks on black communities, on black people, not just because we black, not just because we black, but because we had power, we had economic, we, we had a way of, of building some sort of uh, what they would perceive as a threat to the quote unquote status quo, which was and still remains to be in largely white supremacy. And so watching this Tulsa burning really opened up, you know, a stream of questions for me. And I called my mother and I asked her, you know, did your grandparents ever talk about lynching? Because let's be clear, outside of the Deep South, St. Louis, Missouri is at the top of the list for lynching. Even my mother didn't know that, at the top of the list. And so she said, no, my grandparents didn't talk about anything that was negative, that was scary, you know. And many of our parents operated culturally in that way. Just as we often don't know who our ancestors are, we often can't call people by name. Our families, out of trauma, out of trauma, went silent, went mute on many of these issues. And the only reason we are now looking at and investigating, now digging up the ground, you know, 100 years later from Tulsa, is because people decided to talk about it. Remaining generational grandkids, great-grandkids decided to talk about it. And I believe they started talking about it right in the late 1990s. I think 1998, uh, 99 is when um, journalists and, and book authors and cinematographers really began to approach the community and get their story, get their telling. And so that's what Tulsa burning is about. But in thinking about ancestral veneration, how do we acknowledge our ancestors? First, we got to know who they are. First, we have to look into their history. First, we have to be willing to do some study and some research and expand our research out, you know, beyond just, you know, my people and my scenario. Our people were interlocked, interconnected at, at many levels. And many of us, Otoon and, and Oloye, we're finding it out now through DNA. And, and the importance of gathering this information and retelling our stories. In this quote-unquote modern context, we're using words now like trauma. We understand words now like economic disparity. We understand terrorism now, you know, in a, in a way that our grandparents weren't even able to voice and, and communicate. Imagine being a state with the highest number of lynching and, and your parents or grandparents not even discussing it, not even talking about it. But as I told my mother, I felt it. Even as a child, I knew that there was an invisible line in Kirkwood between Fillmore Avenue and Meacham Park and, and the rest of, of Kirkwood, which is almost entirely white today. It, it might have some integration, but it's almost entirely culturally white today. And I'm sure they desired, coveted that land, much as the land was coveted in Tulsa. Uh, right now, I can't remember the exact community. Oloye might be able to help me. Uh, but, but it was something like 40 square blocks of nothing but black businesses, you know, from the shoeshine boy to the, to the uh, confectioner to the restaurant. Everything was black. 
And again, we had no choice. So first, find out who your ancestors are. Be willing to look at their story. Be willing now to do some shadow work. Because I say it all the time, you can't really do ancestral work without shadow work subsequently bubbling up. If you're doing it right, because your spirit is open, your heart is open, your head is open, and you begin to ask questions. You begin to want to know. You begin to want to explore deeper that experience. So before we pour the libation, before we lay out the food, you know, before we set up, you know, a shrine table, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today, let's find out who our people are, who they are, and help rebuild our own story. Um, we got all kind of guests with us today, special guests. Some of my initiates and godchildren are with us. Of course, my cousins are here with us. My other co-host, Neophyte Boku, is, is dressed in white, and he's here with us. And so I'm, I'm grateful. Can, can you tell by the look on my face? I'm, I'm really happy. As the uh, sister said, this is going to be a powerful show. And again, I appreciate the support and the active participation from our, uh, our guests on the phone lines, area code 845-277-9143. You're welcome to listen, but you're also welcome to press that number one and ask questions and make comments. The chat is also open in both Blog Talk Radio and in StreamYard, Facebook, Twitter, EarthCam, wherever else we can be viewed right now live. Greetings, Alexis Williams. Greetings, beloved. So we invite your participation. The overall ambitious one, that's who, who said this is going to be a powerful show. So I'm going to assume, beloved, you saw the documentary. It, it was indeed powerful. It taught me things. Greetings, Mom. My beloved mother is here, Evangelist Gary Vontel Savage. Joy, wisdom, peace, working and pressing on. Indeed, we are. <laughs> welcome, welcome, Mom. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, thank you, um, the ambitious one. Thank you. So I'm going to start with Otan, because I see that look on her face, and let her give her greetings and salutations. <laughs> Y'all forget I can see your face now. And, and invite you to come on in and, and, and share your greetings with us. Um, then Oloye Ifawole is going to share his greetings. Then Chef Buji and the beloved Orisha, Iba Orisha, Mojuba Orisha, she's going to, they're going to greet us. And then Neophyte Bokur is going to greet us. And then we're going to go in. We're going to go in as deep as y'all can handle today on, on this topic of ancestral veneration. Go ahead, beloved Otan. Morere ni 
especially in 1919, we're talking about uh, that hot red summer. And that red summer, these situations were happening all over the United States, in many, many different states. Going into 1919, 1920, and this being one of the culminations in 1921. Many people lynched all over the place in mass graves and different situations where we don't even, you know, we don't even know the names of these ancestors. Of course, going back farther and, and the lynching back in the 30s and 20s and going back further into uh, all of those circumstances and situations our ancestors went through, uh, through the enslavement, and then before that into the Middle Passage. You know, the loss of connection between us and who we are today and many of our, not just ancestors, but I would dare to say that each of us have actually blood family or relatives that are out across in, in Africa that, of course, you know, we don't know who they are. I can tell you by in going over there that many times, you know, you have a semblance in, in your face of, of people in Benin or, uh, or in Nigeria, and, and sometimes people will stop and look at you and they'll ask the family that you might be visiting, is, is that your family? And they'll say, yeah, that's our brother, that's our cousin from the United States or whatever. So um, I don't want to talk too long. We have many people, but I just wanted to share, you know, the, the different townships, they were black-owned out here, and that was found across the United States and many of the different states. This situation with Tulsa being more uh, known today because of commemorating the 100th anniversary right now as we speak. And then, you know, it gives light to much of what happened during that time and all of the businesses. There were so many businesses owned by our people that even the white people were coming in to borrow money from the black people. That's something that, that people don't know. And the other thing that might not be known is that going back just before the land run, Oklahoma was deemed to be that land where the blacks were supposed to go for their so-called 40 acres and a mule. But when the land, they saw that there was so much out here in the resources, and they went through the land run, that took away all of that promise that was given to the blacks of having their free land. So just to throw that in there, too, that Oklahoma was deemed to be that land for the free blacks. And then, of course, we amalgamated within uh, the, the uh, Native American uh, population out here with the food uh, freedmen. The other part to that uh, is if everybody knows about the Long Ranger, this is where the actual Long Ranger was, the true one, and it was a black man. His name was Bass Reeves. Bass Reeves was a well-known sheriff that was respected and knew the cultures of the different, uh, I don't want to say tribes, but the different communities in the Native American um, uh, communities, and not just in Oklahoma, but in, in Texas, up above us, Missouri, and all of that, too. So Oklahoma does have a, a, uh, a, a 
pretty interesting history, a pretty interesting story. Me not being from here, I'm limited, but those are a couple of things that, that uh, you know, to give you guys some, some knowledge of. So blessings, and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. We, we certainly appreciate that. You are Devon. Thank you. We, we certainly appreciate that and always grateful um, for your active participation. I want to introduce Chef Bougie and his beloved wife, Orisha. Uh, I'd like you all to come in and, and give your greetings and salutations and then talk a little bit about what ancestors mean to you. And, and if you can, a little bit about who your ancestors are. Okay, hi. First of all, hi everyone. How's it going for today? And um, I'm going to turn it over to the spokesman of the the council. Okay, greetings everybody. Greetings. I feel so, I'm so happy that I'm able to sit here and be with you guys today. I'm always in the chat. I never get a chance to participate. And starting off, I just want to say thank you to the Divine Prince for being able to facilitate this where we can commune with one another and Oloye and Otun and the Disciples all the people that come in, it is a lot of energy to hold a space like this, to keep it going rather than being a participant and sitting and watching and participating in chat. It is a lot of work. And so I just want to tell you guys, thank you so much. I appreciate everything you do. I have a kinship with you and you probably don't even know it, you know. This is the thing that I look forward to when I'm at work every day when the show comes on. Um, in terms of ancestor worship, well, this is something just like, you know, walking, talking, breathing. This is something that has been incorporated into my life that is just a normal part of the everyday, you know, activities that we go through. It wasn't always that way, but it is now. Um, I'm one of the oldest children in the family, so I've kind of taken up the spot of the matriarch and kind of responsible for those who have kind of got, I want to say, like have some cobwebs and don't remember ancestor worship. So I've kind of taken on that position and that role in the family to teach about ancestor worship. Okay, and and we're going to go to Neophyte Bokur next, and we'll we'll come back to you momentarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to go to Neophyte Bokur next, um, and I will come back to you. I got some questions uh, for you, Chef Buzi and Orisha, uh, to answer and respond to. But I'm going to give Neophyte Bokur an opportunity to offer his greeting, salutation, and speak a little bit about what ancestor veneration means to you. And if you can recall some of your ancestry, we'd like to hear that. Peace and blessings, family. Greetings, everybody in the chat. More importantly, blessings to ancestors, especially today. So, right now, um, I guess I can go into my my ancestry. Um, when I think of that, what comes to mind immediately is my grandfather, who I'm named after. Um, obviously, this isn't my real name, but <laughs> um, but not just him, but his father. I have his father's name as well. So the the responsibility to uphold their names, 
that were given to them and being able to pass that down. Uh, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about ancestry worshiping, being embodiment of who their legacy was or what, that, what legacy they left behind. Uh, just in the name, it's alone, passing it down, making sure that they're honored, you know, in the next generation. Um, it's a constant battle where people don't put the respect on just simple things like a name. When you, when you receive your name and you have to fight for it, literally. But, um, yeah, what comes to mind immediately for me is my grandfather being named after him and his father and the legacy that they left behind, both war veterans, one from World War One, one from the other from World War II. Um, my grandfather fighting in two different branches of the military and leaving behind uh, just a, a plethora of different things that I can go into as far as history uh, to research what his life was like. And the more I do that, the more it enriches uh, my life when it comes to uh, just knowing the ins and outs and how to navigate the countryside. Um, again, I'm a truck driver. And all of the, the stories that I get to um, archive in my mind of different things that I got to poke and prod at my grandfather uh, when I was younger, I can actually go out and visit these places now. Uh, him being from Kentucky and then moving into California, that journey itself uh, leaves the door open to a lot of questions. Tulsa being one of them. Uh, when you think about Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the freeway that is on top of it now, you know, a lot of these questions are going to bubble up to the surface, and they've got to be answered. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's going to be powerful too because I, I got a lot on my mind. I got to organize it and get it together. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I've got a lot to share. Today. That was great. That was great. And you and you reminded me through your commentary to also talk about sacred space. You know, many of you are now well aware that we're sort of in a battle for not just Congo Square, but the history, culture, and tradition that is Treme. A very little of the original Treme footprint still remains untouched. Very little of the original Congo Square acreage remains untouched. And so we need to protect not just, you know, the name, and, and ancestral names and, and lineages, but also sacred space. You know, we, we know of uh, an incident in New York City where, you know, they're building the next high rise and then they find an ancient, you know, uh, African burial ground. I don't like to say an uh, ancient slave burial ground, but, it, but an ancient black or African burial ground. And this has happened all over the country. All over the country, this has happened where the footprint of our history, the footprint of our tradition, the footprint of our culture it has been erased or is actively under attack right now of being erased. Uh, I know the beloved Queen Quet. If you don't know who the beloved Queen Quet is, you, you need to ask somebody and you need to do some research. Uh, she is the representative for the Gullah Geechee Nation and, and particularly a great deal of the land in the Carolina Sea Islands, North and South Kakalaki. And, and northern Georgia, um, where the 
Gullah Geechee's originally had their their, their physical uh, geographic location. And so now they're fighting golf courses and, and, resort, and resorts. And when we think about the coastline, much of the coastline, particularly on the East Coast, was black. The colonizers weren't interested in that land. They weren't interested in, 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 in building on that land. They couldn't grow, you know, food, you know, and, and crops on that land. So they treated it like wasteland, and we treated it like home and built encampments throughout, you know, the U.S. in, in these otherwise unreachable uh, domains. Tremaine sits in what Tremaine sits in what once was, you know, an unreachable domain. The city of New Orleans proper is the French Quarter. So this side of, of Rampart would have been swamp and uninhabitable land. Some of you are familiar with Basin Street. There's actually a water basin underneath Basin Street. That's where the water would turn. Many of you are familiar with Canal Street. Active Canal, you know, that went underneath Canal Street. So we know that, you know, municipalities will come in sometimes with, uh, uh, what is it, eminent domain, you know, and other forms of, of trickery, you know, to access our land. We, we all are familiar with, you know, the inheritance drama, you know, and Big Mama leaving her property or Big Papa leaving their property, and, and families have fallen out over over land, have fallen out over property, have lost property. I know that on my father's side of the family, they lost a hotel and a great deal of acreage beneath the grounds of the hotel because they couldn't agree on who was going to do the talking. They couldn't agree on who was going to interact with the, with the attorney. And subsequently, the, the property ended up in the hands of the attorney, uh, and, and now it's just a distant memory you know, within the uh, context of our family. So I think knowing who our ancestors are, as my cousin so eloquently um, described, in Yoruba, Egun, those relatives that we know, those family members that we know or have name of, and then Egungun, those more elevated, ascended ancestors, which may or may not be directly related to us. You know, some of us acknowledge Marcus Garvey. Some of us acknowledge uh, uh, Nefertiti. And Akhenaten, we we all acknowledge many symbolic representations of our ancestors in various forms. You know, we have the king and queen, you know, complex. So we love to acknowledge the kings and queens and rulers, you know, of, of our, our lineages. And I was in a phone call yesterday with with Orisha, and you know, she said if we go far back enough, all of us related somewhere. All of us are related, you know, when we start getting into ethnic groups and geographic locations and, and very specific events, you know, in, in our distant and remote past, indeed, many of us will come to find out that we have some interrelation. Uh, Arisha gave me a few family names, and, and those names showed up in my ancestors. Now, we don't know yet if we are related, but, but I behoove you. And those who I'm actively working with have already done so. I have done Ancestry.com, 23andMe, African Ancestry. You know, there are about a half dozen of them, you know, that I could rattle off. You know, and I often don't tell people exactly what test to take. I, I will say Ancestry.com is the most popular, and it's the oldest in terms of 
financial acceptability and, and accessibility to the general population. So I found many close relatives in Ancestry.com. My mother took the test, so my mother's in my results. My sister Wapani took the test, so Wapani's in my results. But then my father's children, my half-brothers and sisters, they're in the test. Uh, aunts, uncles, cousins, first cousins that we had no knowledge of. Didn't know my father had a brother that had kids until DNA. Had no knowledge of it. So I think it's an important tool for us to use as a part of our ancestral veneration, identifying who they are, identifying who we are. Because the more we're able to identify them, the more we're able to understand, you know, ourselves. Tulsa touched me in many places of the ambitious ambitious one. And she said she had the same sort of response to it. And it really made me think about what did my grandmother really grow up in, you know, in, in, in Kirkwood, Missouri? What did her parents have to think, have to believe about themselves to be able to build two houses, you know, and, and have two lots of, of land and what otherwise was a white town. Kirkwood has always been a white town. Some, some serious racial incidents have, have taken place uh, in the city of Kirkwood. Uh, I think a councilman fired a gun, you know, in, 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 in one of the municipal buildings in, in Kirkwood. You know, it, it, it's, it's the gateway to the West, but it, it's always had a Wild West sort of undertone to it that even I as a child, you know, could feel. My grandmother, who I'm so grateful for today, um, she shopped at white stores. She shopped at the Kroger, the white people's Kroger, the white people's Walgreens, you know, the the, the, uh, dealers and and other stores that I can't remember right now that existed, you know, in my time in the 60s and the 70s in that area. And she held her head up, and she demanded respect. And she was respected. Some of you have heard me talk about her before. She, like Marie LeBeau, she was a hairdresser, had her own salon in the basement of, of her house, full salon, waiting area and, and, and everything, you know. And so she was a, an important woman socially in that town. And because she never talked about anything negative or anything traumatic, you know, I never understood her story in its fullness. You know, my grandmother was prim and proper, and you were to be ladylike or, or, or gentlemanlike. You behaved when you went out in public. We understood that we were representing her, you know, and that lineage. But she didn't talk about lynching. She didn't talk about racism. She didn't talk about white supremacy. You know, and I don't judge her. You know, I've talked to enough people over the years to understand that that was a cultural nuance, I believe, built out of trauma that existed in many of our families. And so they didn't tell the little kids stuff that was, that was going to give them nightmares. They, they tried not to tell the little kids, you know, bad things. Uh, unfortunately, to some degree, that has hurt us. You know, particularly black men, we, we have to know where we're at when we step out into the street, when we step out into the world. Unfortunately, how to act around police, how to act around the sheriff, you know, and, and, and come home alive. You know, so when we acknowledge ancestors, it's important that we acknowledge history, background, the story, along with just the shrine work and, and the altar work 
you know, and, and knowing how to speak eloquent, you know, ethnic tongues, fine and Ewe and Yoruba. But you got to have a clear, just like meditation. Meditation ain't just about breathing and sitting still and quietly and going blank. You got to have an intention. You got to have some kind of context from in your in your mind that you are pulling from when you're doing uh, ancestor work. Now, um, Arisha, beloved, um, I want you to share a little bit about your experience directly with me. You know, as a practitioner teaching you ancestral um, work, having done an ancestral uh, divination. Uh, if you don't mind, can I show one of your pictures? Okay. People often say, oh, it's a lot of work, and I don't know what to do. Yeah, and it is, and it is, but Arisha has just made it just look so easy (laughs) and and so flawless and so beautiful. And my audience, I've never done this before, so, you know. But this is an example of Chef Bougie and Arisha's ancestral altar. And people talk about, you know, closets and cabinetry and, you know, I have two rooms of ancestors in my house, not because I have to conceal it, but because I work with with not just my ancestors, but the ancestors of those who I I also assist in their endeavors. But this is a a A plus, 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 plus (laughs) in, in my class of really absorbing the information, the knowledge, and then putting that to work. It, it is not just an antenna, if you will, or a place from where we draw, you know, and invite our ancestors to get involved and to intervene in our lives. But it's, but it's also a place to work out our shadow work and to subsequently bring our family together, even if they don't know what we're doing, if, even if they're not aware. So I want you to talk a little bit, Orisha, um, and if you don't mind, share your experience with us, because many people are concerned about how their mama going to respond. You know, what if my sisters and them find out I got this going on in my house? And so I want you to share your experience, your family experience with with working with me and doing this work, mm-hmm. but, but then how your family has responded to it. Okay. So, uh, uh, you know, some of my family, they don't have, they don't have any information or any footprint, so to say, regarding altars. So, first and foremost, my altar is in my house, and when you walk in my house, it's visible. It's not in the way, but it is visible. Um, and so, as the older auntie and the, the older person in the family now, my mother transitioned, so now I've moved up in terms of being a small matriarch in the family. One of the things, to give an example, is on Mother's Day, everyone decided to come here and gather at my house. So I had nieces and nephews, little ones, big ones, and people kind of, you know, I could see the look in some people's faces when they came in. And so what happened, I I took people into the room, because I have a room just dedicated to that. And so I took nieces and nephews, cousins, and it actually became a gathering place where we talked about my mother, we talked about my our grandparents. We, you know, right before they came, I was just finishing up, you know, cleaning up the altar and putting food on the altar. So a couple of people had arrived early. They were able to, to 
But that room ended up being just we were jam packed in there and it was, you know, going over the, the ass and I had moved and nephew. He was like, Well, Auntie, you know, tell me about this, you know, explain this to me. And so, you know, it you know, a thing where I introduced the family members into it to kind of bring them around. And I, my reception with it, their reception to it was, was phenomenal from what we say. It just was phenomenal. And so, you know, when they come in, my thing is to teach them, to teach them what I'm learning. Yeah, and de- and demystify, you know, that idea of, of wickedness, you know, that, that the oppressors, you know, have often put on our, on our traditions. And if I haven't already made it clear, um, it wasn't just, just that they wanted to demonize our traditions, but, but they wanted to steal power from us and steal our ability to regenerate power within ourselves, and particularly from that ancestral root. Um, sacred space is necessary. It's necessary, especially for us, the, the, the descendants of enslaved Africans and indigenous people here in the Americas. Uh, when we look around us, there are uh, shared, confirmed sacred spaces for government, for white history, for European history, for battles, for wars. We have several, quote, unquote, sacred war grounds, you know, where battles were fought here, you know, in the U.S., but consistently and I can't speak, Craig, to, to, the US, to the U.K., but consistently here in the U.S., uh, our sacred spaces are being appropriated. Uh, and again, Congo Square, Treme is a part of that attempt to erase history, erase culture, erase the footprint of tradition, and relegate it only to books and documents. Um, I also showed at the at the beginning hour uh, between 11 and noon uh, a video video of uh, Freddie Evans Williams, who wrote the book Congo Square uh, here in in New Orleans. And she talked a great deal about the the culture and the traditions and the practice and the music and and and, and the American now we consider them American traditions that came out of our culture, jazz. You know, yes, we, we, we use a, a European instrument, a, a trombone, a, a, a saxophone, but, but we made something new. So not only is sacred space necessary on the ground, but it's also necessary, as Arisha just eloquently uh, demonstrated, that we are able to create sacred space where we are and in our home and in our environment. It, it's wonderful to be able to go to see Marie Lavoie at St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. There are a few voodoo priests buried in, in that cemetery uh, that many people don't know or know where they're located that I know and Denise Augustine know. And so it, it's, a, it's a pleasure and, and it's an honor and it's very empowering, you know, to, to visit my ancestral grounds in, in Mississippi, you know, and, and put my feet, you know, in the dirt that my ancestors walked in. But we also have to be able to create and recreate sacred space within ourselves, within our homes, to acknowledge ancestral veneration. And, and as Chef Bougie and, and, and beloved Arisha are doing, and then teach that to our family, and then teach that to the next generation. I see a day where ancestral veneration and, and houses 
sacred houses will be erected and maintained primarily for this reason. People are falling away from from so-called organized religion, the ones that have dominated us for, for centuries. And they're looking for something to fill that, to replace that. You know, pe- people don't want to turn their back on God. They want to turn their back on man and, and religious structures that, that have been used against us, that have confined to us, that have limited our ability to access our power. And so I teach that our ancestors are our front line of defense. They're in your blood. They're already present. Whether you understand ancestor veneration or not, they're already present. They're already influencing your choices, your decisions, your thoughts sometimes. You know, we either hear them and hear them clearly or, or, or we believe, you know, something else. You know, it's just a random thought or it's just my imagination. But when we actively, just like in meditation, actively activate a word, a phrase, a mantra, an awareness, we indeed open up gates and portals where our ancestors can come in and, and show themselves and present themselves and really do powerful things uh, in our lives. I, I, like my cousin, I'm beginning to feel like I'm doing a lot of the talking. Um, so I'd appreciate some, some feedback from my co-host and my audience wherever you are viewing or listening to the show in the world, and speak to like. the sacredness of, of, of places. I'm going to say that, um, say your name for me, please, dear heart, because I want to I want to be able to say your name correctly. Orisha. Orisha. Some people say Orisha. It doesn't matter. Orisha or Orisha, whichever one you want. It's how well, Orisha it's, it's, it's is spelled. Orisha is how Orisha is spelled in Brazil. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm just um, I wanted to touch on uh, the story that she shared firstly and say that um, what you did and how you began to prepare with the ancestral altar, as you said some lives early and then others um, at or whatever time that was set, um, I think it's beautiful that your ancestors showed up and also encouraged the spirit of community and conversation and made sure that everybody was in a place where they were mentally, spiritually, and mentally, like emotionally open to the things were sharing. And as children all around and, and the memories and everything of the life, an elevation to share that space with you and flow that you thought what you might have gotten. I remember during the story you said, Yeah, you saw a few looks, but you saw with your own eyes the transformation and how spirit can work the thing and how your ancestors can literally show up and help weave that connection where there's a gap of communication where there's not as much understanding, that is what was given all in that moment. And the growth that you showed in keeping your food, not allowing looks or anything else to get to you, also elevates you in that moment as the new matriarch and solidifies your position, not just with your family, but with your ancestors as well. So I want to say that that was a beautiful story, powerful on so many levels, and a 
us in our blood. There have been a lot of times when we have been in conversation or been thinking something and whatever came out wasn't necessarily what you would have said, or, but it would have been someone that you knew, an ancestor of yours, and you go, wow, that's something such and such would have said. It really bothers me to see people, a lot of the younger generation go, oh, you know, we just, we're not our ancestors. You absolutely are. I say all the time, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. Imagine walking, talking. We have to learn how to dig deep because a lot of the answers, a lot of the things that we teach and gain from our ancestors actually within ourselves. That's the importance of meditation, prayer, sitting, thinking, being in that quiet is a power in that. And if we are willing to be still and to listen, just take some time out. You know, have a favorite favorite meal of someone you were close to. Take them a cup of coffee. A lot of our a lot of our ancestors love coffee. You know, take them some coffee. Um, things like that is there's so many things that we can do to connect. It doesn't have to be knowing so much. It's just bit by bit. It's just taking those first that can mean the difference, that can actually make the shift in our lives that we're looking for. A lot of it, if you just tap in, that's where it goes. I like to say, I like to say, um, you, you take one step and they will stand up in you. You know, the, the church used to say you take one step, God will take two. But when it comes to the ancestors, I say you take one step and they will stand up within you. And when I think about the character for my great-grandparents to build what they build, built and, and survive in, in Missouri in that environment, even though they didn't talk about it, just, you know, my imagination wants to know, you know, how did they process that? How did they get up every day knowing that, you know, they might be slighted, you know, because of their race, knowing that their property might be burnt down, you know, out of jealousy, knowing that, you know, they could be harmed, you know, by, by the lynch mob at, at any given point. You know, it's, it's just a profound thing to, to just sit, you know, and, and meditate on. And, and it makes me feel, you know, that we can be petty, you know, in, in, in a modern context, you know, about being tired and about being fed up and, and, and then think about what our ancestors endured just so that we can be alive. Another myth I want to, you know, put a needle through the balloon is the idea that our ancestors were somehow weak or were somehow passive. You know, they, they should have got up and, and, and went to war. Well, they did get up and, and, and go to war. They did fight back, and, and they fought back in every possible way they could. They absolutely did fight back, and, and sometimes that meant moving away. Sometimes that meant standing and, and defending your ground. Now, there were great uh, uh, entrepreneurs and businessmen who stood their ground, you know, in in the Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma event and didn't have to and and lost their lives, you know, in in the process. Many have given their lives as as martyrs, so to speak, for our freedom, for our liberation, for our awareness. We think now about so many people being, you know, killed by the police, you know, who are now being made martyrs. So many who've been sitting on death row, you know, or have lost their life, you know, only to later on have DNA proved that 
They didn't have anything to do with it. They now have also become, you know, ancestral martyrs. So, so there are many degree of ancestors and and Egungun. Uh, I learned that in in the Yoruba uh, in particular, they have they have a whole, you know, list of of names for various types of Egungun, you know, that exist and interact with us and, and seek to help us, you know, to move forward. So it's good to acknowledge, you know, all the ancestors generally, but it's even better to acknowledge those that we know and those that are, you know, unknown to us or not necessarily linked to us uh, biologically, but have stood up and, and really fought a good fight for us. I long since stopped using terminology like, you know, house nigga and field nigga and, you know, uh, only because, you know, it has been turned into, again, a sign of weakness. Somehow the field slave was, was, was more dominant and more aggressive and more ready to battle than, than those who work in the house. And we know that's not true. We, we demonstrated that very well in, in the TV uh, series um, Underground, which we filmed here in, in New Orleans. And the main characters were primarily in the house. You know, one of the main characters who fled was primarily from within the house. You know, and a Creole girl who, who we like to generalize as somehow having it easier, having an easier time of it because they're of lighter skin. You know, and, and that kind of thing still exists today. That colorism, that paper bag test, you know, it, it, has, it has changed. Just like lynching has had to change from generation to generation. So, no, they don't string you up, you know, by the neck a whole lot anymore. Maybe they don't burn down the whole town or the village anymore. But, but now it's political redistricting. Now it's through your taxes. Now it's through creating laws and regulations that prevent you from building. Uh, it's my understanding in the documentary that, that 40 uh, square blind had Code many of the blacks from rebuilding or returning, you know, their business, and so that sacred footprint, Craig, is essential for us. And here in the states, you know, it is it is removed and built on top of if if they're allowed to get away with that. When we look at D.C., when we look at it, Annapolis, when we look at Baltimore. We look at Philadelphia, and remember, there, w- there would have been smaller but numerous enclaves of black communities surrounding, you know, these big centers. And many of them have fallen by the wayside in silence. Many of them have been built over Memphis. There's a section of Memphis that's historic to the Dr. King era that has been neglected and ignored ever since, ever since. And they're slowly gentrifying that area now. No one wants to live there. It's a pattern we've seen from L.A. to New York. You know, they allow it to go down to the pit. They they bring in drug activity and, and, and drugs into that community. They make it dangerous and scary, you know, to everybody, you know, to want to go through. And then when even those people, you know, have been arrested and, and evicted and, and moved away, they let it sit until it goes out of our memory, and, and we particularly have been accused of having a short-term memory in America, and then they come in and slowly rebuild it, re-gentrify it. 
take it back, if you will. I remember white flight. For my younger listeners, that meant certain towns, certain communities. I grew up in Coral Hills, Capitol Hills, Maryland, which was once white. And, and as soon as the black families started moving in, all the white families, for the most part, moved out. That's white flight. But that's also a part of the gentrification process. The more black it becomes, the less of value it is to the white system. Sometimes it degrades your home value, you know, if, if it's only black people in a particular area or community, even if there's no crime. There was hardly any crime at all in that area when I grew up there. The crack era is when that area of PG County changed. And when I went back to see it in, in 2000, I was shocked and amazed at what Capitol Heights, Maryland looks like today. And, and, and what have they done now in, in, in 2021? It's, it's completely surrounded by, up to a block away, by brand new condominiums, brand new co-op uh, buildings, either integrated or primarily white. And if you're familiar with the economy of the DMV, it takes a lot of money to live in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area. You know, the average rent, I think, is 1800 to $2,000 a month. It's comparable to New York City. It's comparable to Los Angeles. It's comparable to Miami. So just imagine, and there's still a large population of blacks and other ethnic groups, black and brown, you know, ethnic groups in that region. So how do our, our people continue to survive under all sorts of oppression, you know, and, and still keep showing up, still keep rebuilding, still keep buying and owning and, and possessing? And, and, and how do we keep believing sort of the, the lie that we are weak people, that we can't unify, that we can't come together? I've learned as a mature adult that that's not true either. And there are many people who are coming together, who are building. They're just not doing it in front of the camera. They're just not doing it in social media. Maybe they don't have time to do it, you know, in social media. So as we evolve, as we open our consciousness, you know, to higher vibrations, to God, to the ancestors, I believe we get downloads of information, whole downloads of information that change the way we live, how we eat, how we structure our lives, how we structure our business. And indeed, our ancestors are on that front line of defense. So we pour libation to our ancestors. We feed food and, and pork and, and produce to our ancestors. Traditionally, I've sort of done that at the tree in Congo Square, you know, every Sunday or, or as frequently as I could. Um, and it got to be a bit expensive. Uh, and my schedule now is just so overwhelming. So I don't do it every Sunday anymore. Uh, I might do it in the middle of the week. I, I might do it when some of my godchildren or visitors come, you know, to the city. And, and then we go, you know, as a group and lay offerings down at the tree and, and pray and chant and acknowledge, you know, our ancestors. But being able to bring that sacredness into your house. And, again, it's not just a visual, you know, that sort of reminds us of something, but it's also a motivating factor. You know, it's hard for me to walk past my three ancestral shrines, you know, and not acknowledge them, not clean them up not want to dust them off. See, we don't treat this like the old coffee table with the Bible on it, with the high school diplomas on it, that we let get dusty. 
you know, this is something that we actively uh, interact with every day. And um, Oloye, in, in, in my house, we do follow the, the, the ritual calendar. Uh, the four-day mm-hmm. ritual calendar is, is acknowledged in Voodoo, in Togo, in Benin, in Haiti even. So we do follow, you know, that four-day ritual calendar. And sometimes people get confused by that because they have those names that sound like Arisha to them. Mm-hmm. And so I have to keep reminding them that, you know, we're dealing with ancestors, we're dealing with Irumale, we're dealing, you know, with something a little bit higher than, than Arisha. Can you talk about that mm-hmm. for a moment? So you want to talk about the difference between Irumale and, and Orisha? Yeah, and ancestors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ancestors, okay. So Irumale would be the emissaries of Alurumare directly sent from Olorun, heaven, down here to earth. They are the ones who are given the authority to begin the formulation of what we have as as society and the world today. When Alurumare put in his mind that he wanted to develop this earth, uh, then that's what he did. He sent them uh, 201, 200, 401 total. Uh, and we know uh, the basics of some of them uh, being like uh, Oshun or Ogun or Batala, you know, the basic ones, that, the basic Orumile uh, 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 that was sent down. So you have Orumile uh, that would be like Obatala Orumile. Uh, Ogun, Orumale, Oshun, Orumale. But then you have the the embodiment of that that lived here on earth. They would be the Orisha. They are the ones who lived here on the earth and they did great things. They elevated uh, the society. They elevated people's consciousness. They lived in a very high place in society. And then when they made their transition, they were then elevated to the state of Orisha as in, in a similar perspective is like I would say in uh, what is it, Catholicism people when they when they have done great things as far as the Catholic Church, they saint them. Uh, they move them up to sainthood. So when we have the Orisha, we're talking about those who lived on the earth and then elevated to a higher source of consciousness. Ancestors then, in essence, could still be then Orisha, because if Orisha is said to have lived here on this earth, then they now have elevated, and so now we honor them, and we give honor to all of their contributions. We give honor to all that they, uh, all the, the aspects of them. When we are living in that aspect, right, let's say... Um, that as a priest of, of Oshun, uh, so I have priests in Oshun, in Olofun, in Obatala, Ogun, you know, the embodiment of those, those, those Orisha within me are still walking shrines. We're still walking embodiment of the particular Orisha that we uh, initiate into. And the same thing with uh, those of you that are uh, practicing uh, Voodoo uh, and Louisiana Voodoo, when you guys uh, uh, initiate into whatever 
the loa is, you're now a walking embodiment of that loa. You you have taken and 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 placed that energy that I share within you, and now you are in essence walking in alignment with that orisha and trying to embody that orisha as best as you can in the elevation of who you are to live your highest destiny. So now we go back to destiny when we say that we came uh, and we stepped in front of Alulamare, and as we stepped in front of Alulamare and we moved in front of Alulamare, then and gave Babale, we shared with him what it is that we wanted to honor or, or what we wanted to accomplish in this, this, this run here on earth. And when we came down through the family, because it is said in our culture that we come back through the same family, maybe two generations, three generations uh, different, you know. And so we might come back a great-grandfather, uh, even a grandfather if it's, if it's not, um, if it's like two generations or something. We might we come back and return as a former, and as, a, as one who may transition in the family. And then we come back, and that's why sometimes it seems like maybe we know this and know that within the family, and that's something that we weren't taught. Or maybe certain talents have manifested in us uh, at a very early age, right? So I was listening to Richard Smallwood, and he was telling a story about, like, at two years old, he was humming uh, the, 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 the songs that he heard in church at two. By the time he was three and four or five, his mother had gotten him a, a little piano, and that he was able to now decipher how to play some of that. Then he talked about maybe around six or seven, he was climbing up to his stepfather's piano and that he was actually able to start playing or that he was playing actually at the church. You hear about Andre Crouch in the same kind of thing. He wasn't really taught. He was able to learn by ear. So we look at some of the talents that we might have and the talents in part, I suggest, in part, are the return of the ancestors who we are manifesting as we are walking this earth in this realm, in this time. So we are then completing aspects of the work that our ancestors did not, or we may be taking it one step further. But we also then are also then uh, working on the things that needed to be worked on in their life, maybe that they had to improve. Maybe it was that they had to improve on the way that they, that they um, treated people. So now in this lifetime, we get that lesson subliminally that we need to treat people this way or we need to do something this way to improve. We see in ourselves, ah, this doesn't feel comfortable. This doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like I'm doing this properly or I'm treating this properly or whatever the case might be. And now... I'm making this change, so not only am I making the change for this life, I'm making the change for my ancestors as well. So maybe that change then is breaking the chain of something that we have seen over generations. Maybe, and we always hear of different people that say, I need to break the chain of our family falling apart. I need to break the chain of divorces, of having several kids that are not you know, in, in, in regard to not just wedlock, 
But there's so many uh, of the kids that that when a, a person has that child, they don't even know where that child is or, or whatever. And so those break those things. Says that we are now walking in alignment to correct something that our ancestors needed to correct. We are completing the work of our ancestors. We're doing the work of our ancestors. So um, I hope that this is making sense because it's important to me and in, in my perspective to get people to understand how important the work is and that we, in listening to ourselves, sometimes in listening to ourselves, we hear that voice, don't do that, don't go there. Ah, sit, your, sit your behind down over there and watch. So not only is it a message from spirit in regard to maybe Olumare or Ifa or Orisha or Loa telling us, ah, I'm telling you, I don't care who or what I said, sit down and wait. And then we start getting that message so strongly that we listen and we obey. It's all about the obedience. But also, it could be our ancestors, too, that are saying, I'm trying to protect your behind. Go sit down and wait. There's going to be answers that are going to be given to you. All you got to do is sit down and obey and wait. Regardless to whether we know that uh, this, this message is coming from ancestors or it's coming from Olumare himself or Orisha or Ifa, it's all about our obeying and being able, once we obey, we're able to kind of then see the message that's being given to us and, and we're able to now say, oh, because even if it says in different spiritual traditions, if we obey, even through the discomfort, even through times that it doesn't even look like things are working our way, it is in that obedience that things are actually turning around and that before long, you're going to see the blessing manifested and you're going to be blessed because of your obedience. Our ancestors want us to be obedient in their, in their communication with us just as much as spirit wants us to be obedient in the nature of uh, of that too. We talk about Ifad being the wisdom of nature, and that is in essence the, 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 the basic divine definition. But remember then that in part of that nature that is within us, it is the nature of our ancestors that are within us. So therefore, when we have the wisdom of nature, it is not just the wisdom of nature in regard to Orisha, it is the wisdom of nature in regard to understanding the, the true essence of our ancestors within us as well. Yeah. And especially when we understand DNA and we start meeting family maybe from, from different, you know, and we've not met them before. And then when we meet them at different stages of life, we see so much of us in them. Then we start, oh, wow, yeah. this right here is next level. Like, you know, this yeah. is beyond me. This is something that's been in our bloodline, you know. Yeah. But now i got to do the work now that I recognize it even more if it's something that I know has to be, be corrected. So 
So I hope that that made sense. I know I spoke long. I'm sorry about that. But, you know, uh, there you go, cousin. And I'm glad that you did. Uh, you, you told my story just a little bit. When you started telling about those gospel pianists and how young they were, um, I grew up with a piano. I think my mama had a piano from age one on up. And my grandmother had a piano in her house. So whether I was at home or at my grandmama's house, I always gravitated, you know, to the piano. And though I did subsequently take music and learn to read music and learn to play the tenor saxophone, you know, in elementary, junior high, high school, um, I started playing the piano by ear, by ear. So much so that it became a conflict between reading music and playing the piano versus my, my inner inclination to hear it the way you described it, to hear it and hear it again and again and then be able to sort of mimic that, duplicate that um, on the keyboard. So I don't know what musical ancestor, I don't know what ancestor liked to write, you know, and create, you know, poems and, and scripts and plays. But these, these are things that I was doing um, as a child, um, creating things out of, out of boxes and cardboard and even paper mache. You know, I, I used a lot of paper mache even as a kid, you know, to sort of create things. I took uh, drinking straw, paper drinking straws once. That used to be a common thing, by the way. Paper drinking straws, and I would weave them together and make these Japanese lanterns that would be illuminated, you know, from the inside. And where was all of this coming from? And, of course, at that time, you know, there was no DNA that we could access, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of conversation, you know, within the dynamics of my family about the past and where we were from. And, and you know, and so now, as you said, I, I sort of had to wait, you know, certain seasons of my life. And now I'm getting so much confirmation about things that I, I once did that I, you know, started doing instinctively and intuitively. Uh, Craig also asked about um, transplants. And, and people having, you know, kidney transplant or heart mm-hmm. transplant and then developing certain skills and or knowledge that they did not have before. Uh, and I mm-hmm. do believe, again, it's in the blood, even mm-hmm. though, you know, it's now your blood, but, but the transplanted organ still has that sort of DNA makeup yeah. you know, from mm-hmm. the original person. So, um, yes. yeah, I think there's something that is indeed transferred when, when people have transplants, you know, of human organs. Mm-hmm. Not even one to think about non-human organs, because, you know, they're now making things in the lab and making things on a pig and, you know, and then transferring it to humans. And, and it opens up mm-hmm. a lot of questions, you know, and, and conspiracy theories that people indeed have about DNA. And, and it unfortunately feeds some people's, you know, fear of or anxiety around participating in DNA. The idea that their their cells, like Henrietta Lacks, might be used, you know, for something without their permission or, or even, you know, without their knowledge. And so I acknowledge that, you know, there are all kinds of theories that could be looked at and might even be plausible. But I think the wealth of information that we gain from using the services. For me, and I think for those of you who are still with me on screen, um, has been valuable. Um, forgive me, Orisha, but have you all done DNA yet? 
I can't hear you. Unmute yourself. Okay. <clears throat> we've done two tests. So we did the My Ancestry and we did another test, both of us. And I've been connected with people who I know are my cousins. And uh, Ancestry, it kind of connects you with the land also. So that's another thing that I like about Ancestry. And so on my mother's side of the family, North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina. And then I come to find out that it went down a little further, Tennessee, down towards Louisiana, Mississippi, all of that. So, and then on my father's side was the Caribbean. So, I found cousins. I've been connected with cousins who I know. I, I was connected immediately with the first cousin. And one of the tests that I took, I, you know, because I put a lot of blind solicitors, something that your email account. So one, I use not my name. Yeah, I went that far with it. I use not my name, and I made up a Gmail account, and it still connected me with my first cousin. So I just want to see, you know. So yeah, so I've gotten a lot of good information out of it. That's why I made sure that. That's why I made sure that um, my mother took the test and my sister Lapani took the test, my mother's two children, sort of for the same reasoning, to ensure that things just was right. Uh, I don't even think Lapani used her name uh, when she did hers, you know, her test. And, of course, like you said, we still ended up, you know, connecting together. Uh, I also want to acknowledge what Oloye said about, you know, just the synchronicity between he and myself and Otan and others that we're meeting through the, through the DNA test. I just don't think it's random or accidental that so many of us are actively involved in ATR, you know, in our lives. And then we're finding this connection, you know, through, through DNA. And it's something that I've always said, that it's in my blood, it's in the family, it's in our genes. You know, I may not know who the ancestors are, who the family members are, but I know you know, that they're out there, and now the tests are absolutely demonstrating that. Um, that's the first time I heard you, because I, I need to look at your DNA, too, off the air, by the way, Alicia. But that's the first time I heard you make that Mississippi-Louisiana connection. And, you know, I, I did a quick search yesterday, and, and your family name show up in my results. Uh, what I did search was your name. Yes, I need to go back and search your name specifically. Since you did take the Ancestry.com test. And you I'm adopting her as a cousin anyway. Yes. 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 Gotta get you. Gotta get And yes. And I also want to know you mentioned another test. What was the name of the test? So that was the first test that I took. My heritage is my heritage. You know, we was like sitting around the house on a Thanksgiving and it kept coming up on TV. Like, you can get this DNA test for $49, and we all flew with it. And that was the very first one. And then the second one, which is my real name for email address, that's my ancestry. Yeah, the one goes further in time. Yeah. It goes back as far as Neanderthal. Yeah. There is another one that you can take to where they look at the mitochondrial DNA. 
and they can tell what tribe your family is from. You know, but they only, I think they only use the mother. Yeah, yeah. Just like the African ancestry one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dark Soul Jua said she's frustrated with ancestry. She only got hints for white people. She has never been connected with any of her relatives, so it's frustrating and confusing. Uh, that I understand. Now, if I can offer you just a little piece, um, just just know that everybody else that's in your that's not quote unquote white is connected to you. You know, is indeed a, a relative of yours. Now, um, how much of your family has actually taken the Ancestry.com test, whether you know about it or not, that also plays a role. Now, in my family. Uh, a great deal of my family on both sides have some reason taken ancestry. So there's a clear distinction in my ancestry with my mother's side of the family, the Savages, um, just to name one family name, and then the Broomfields on my father's side of the family. Um, Dr. Soju, I found out that my great-great-grandfather was a white Confederate soldier. Now, we're still not clear on if he was Passon Blanc, or if he was white, you know, that, that's still not entirely clear. He had several children. Uh, I want to say, I think he had 14 children. And at least two Thank of them. Devon, you broke up. You might have to say it again. Okay. You broke up that. Okay, please forgive me. Um, you heard me say that my great-great-grandfather is a white Confederate soldier. Yes. And we're not clear on if he's Passon Blanc, which is a phraseology that we've used historically in Louisiana to suggest someone who could pass for white. Uh, Orisha, with the right hair color, could pass for white if she wanted to, so she would have been considered Passon Blanc. So we don't know if my grandparents were, great-grandparents were Passon Blanc or if they were indeed white, but we know they had black children. Mm-hmm. And so my great-grandfather along with his wife, Ola B. Broomfield, and Monroe Broomfield, um, show up as black in the census record. Now, visually, because I met um, Ola B., my great-grandmother on my father's side, she looked like an Indian. And Arisha could pass for indigenous or, or Native American as well. So, you know, ethnicity is such a complicated thing. Uh, with those tests. And some of those people that you might be seeing Dark Jua as white might not really be white, or they may have embraced the whiteness. And so that sort of followed them historically uh, uh, over time. We know that in some of these families, you know, they had a, a adherence to the brown people bag test. And so you weren't allowed to marry people of a certain shade historically, you know, in our community as well as in the white community. Uh, we know that uh, in terms of enslavement, you know, you had the, the owner who often inter, intermixed with the slave, you know, and, and once the family went one direction, the, the white family went one direction, and then the black family went, you know, another direction. So I'm asking you to be mm-hmm. patient with it, to sort of stick with it. If you can do... Um, another test with a different company because all the companies don't have access to the same DNA 
all the uh, companies aren't looking for the same thing. Uh, so that's why many of us have taken more than one test. Uh, and you know what, President? The other thing is, like, around 1870s, uh, when, you know, the natives were going through all the challenges because of the Andrew Jackson uh, sending them all over that damn place uh, and then having to go through the Tale of, the trail of Tears, it is said then during the, because that was the beginning of the census that the, that the black and, and different people were able to on, it is said then that in order for us, that, that many of the natives, in order for them to survive, had to either look themselves as black or white. Mm-hmm. That's right. So in some instances, you know, there is the native, but they had to list themselves one way or the other in order just for them to, to, to survive and, and, and to make it through. That's how dastardly Andrew Jackson had done, you know, done, done the people. And, and so there are, I don't like using tribes, but there are tribes like that you will see very light-skinned or fair-skinned people but they're not white. They they can pass, you know, that way. But they're native. Uh, and then, you know, even in our community, as we intermarried in with some of them, like uh, I have Nate, I have Saponi, and I have Shinnecock. So we have people that have very fair. They look just like cousin Orisha. <laughs> and so, you know. But they're they they're not white, uh, and so just wanted to throw that in. We also had the natives that had to pick between the white and the black on the census in order to 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 even make it. Yeah, in order to survive. Yeah. Yes, in order to survive, uh, we know mm-hmm. the great deal of shenanigans, for lack of a better word, that went on. Uh, with race and, and ethnicity, you know, over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I believe originally that land in that Tulsa, Oklahoma area was considered a, a quote-unquote indigenous land originally. And then yes. as black people began to move there, it then became a quote-unquote black enclave, you know. Mm-hmm. But we And the areas around. And the, area the areas around, around uh, have native names to the towns. Okmogi. Uh, you know, Okmogi, there's a few other towns, but you'll see the native names to the, to the areas that are right around Tulsa, right around Jinx. Yeah, yeah. And, and Craig Burns, they also brought that sort of struggle to, to, New, to New Orleans. Um, mm-hmm. The Haitian Revolution, I, I think, uh, grew in, popula- it, in population after the Haitian Revolution. The notion, the idea that greatly influenced our culture here in Louisiana is absolutely true. It is absolutely true. And, and that not only includes voodoo, but other cultural nuances, food, spices, way of living, way of dressing, you know, absolutely amalgamated, you know, into the double pot. You know, that is Louisiana. But I often remind people that the voodoo was already here. The, the, the Creole culture was already here. The Spanish mm-hmm. culture was already here. You know, we went back and forth between the Spanish 
and the French and then the English, you know, in, in our history uh, as not only a city of New Orleans, but also a state. This of Congo Square, just, you know, because we're allowed to dance and drum, bambula, and, and, and do our practices and traditions there. But it was sacred even before it was a, uh, a sacred place for the Homa Indians and many of the other indigenous people here, and they had corn festivals in that in that region. So the sacredness has mixed. It has, it has transferred. You know, it has leaped back and forth from one culture to another. And, again, particularly for us, it makes that a little bit more complicated and figure out who is what, where we were at any given time. I like that uh, Orisha mentioned that uh, Ancestry.com is, is good at geographic. You know, mm-hmm. it, it can it can pull up regions, countries where, where your your bloodline migrated to, moved mm-hmm. to, and, and it give you an approximate date. You know, I can see when my family begins to leave the Louisiana, Mississippi Delta area mm-hmm. and then move up towards Michigan, Missouri, Chicago. I can see where my mother's side of the family. Um, Early, probably one of the first blacks to be in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area, and then where that began to move south. And, and remember, there was a time when the import of Africans from the continent was made illegal. Mm-hmm. And so then your pirates come into play. And so the pirates were bringing slaves up through the bayous and in the swamps and in the hidden areas. And then there was a, a, a history of trafficking of enslaved uh, people from the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area and bringing them south. And mm-hmm. heaven forbid that period where they started snatching free people. You know, you weren't safe entirely in Philadelphia or New York, you know, or Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And if they thought they could trick you and capture you, they would. Mm-hmm. And then that bloodline would then be brought back into the south. So I don't mm-hmm. want to give anybody the impression that just one test is going to help you with all your answers. In fact, you'll have more questions originally than even answers, you know, as, mm-hmm. you, as you do these tests. But the more that you do and the more that you get your family involved, you know, if you can, get one for yourself and your mom, yourself and your dad. You know, if you mm-hmm. have half-brothers and sisters, try and get, you know, them to take a test. Uh, I needed that so that I could determine, you know, my mom's bloodline, my dad's bloodline. Of course, my half-brothers and sisters are going to show up in relationship to, you know, my dad, but then they have a mother, you know, and I needed a way to sort of distinguish, you know, who's from what. Even mm-hmm. on my mother's side of the family, we found what my mom understood to be a family friend that they had always known in the family, and this family friend has the exact same name as a third cousin that's now showing up on our DNA test. And, of course, she reached out to him, and he, you know, no, that's not me, but the guy that's on the DNA test is a little bit much younger than him. So, again, men having children and more children and unknown children, in my family, that has been a problem. Uh, Oye talked about the ancestors stopping certain things. I knew at age three, four, five, I would never have children. Has nothing to do with being gay. I believe a person is born into their sexual identity. But you're not thinking about sexual identity at three, four, and five. 
But I knew instinctively, it's one of the reasons I got expelled from, from kindergarten for being precocious and saying very adult-like things that they thought was inappropriate. And so they went around the room, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I'm not going to have children. I think I was removed from kindergarten like the next day <laughs> after having said that because maybe they thought I was a danger to the other children. You know, they, they only picked up on my dislike, you know, for children. But it wasn't about a dislike for children. It was about a feeling of disconnection from children. And that did show up as a child with me befriending older people. And I think that she has that in common. I always wanted to be around older people, adults, with a real conversation, you know, going on. You know, I, I, I didn't find kid activities entertaining. And then my father only exasperated that because we weren't allowed to get toys for Christmas. We got books. We got clothes for church. We, we got more serious, you know, things at Christmas. So I grew up as a very serious, mature, you know, kind of kid. And how much influence of that comes from my grandmother? Uh, Oloye really puts me in a position to think about that. Because both of my great-grandmothers and my father's mother were very severe. I don't remember her smiling a whole lot. I don't remember her laughing a whole lot. We're very severe. And in the absence of information, we don't know what kind of trauma, rape, abuse, lynching that they witnessed, lynching that they might have had to flee from, that they just swallowed. And then it developed alcoholism on my father's side of the family, drug abuse, generational drug abuse on my father's side of the family. And so I, you know, instinctively felt that it was the will of God, that I was born and created exactly the way that I was, and that my awareness that I wasn't going to have children was an act of God. I believe that generational curse of having multiple children that are either abandoned or neglected, you know, I think that's a word that might apply to what you said, OEA. They have kids, but then they go neglected, ignored, not supported, not fed. And I believe I was to stop that. And my sister Wapani only has one child, a grown son, a chef, Chef Bougie, you know, a young up-and-coming, right around 30 years old in, in St. Louis. You know? So, so many things transfer from generation to generation, through our blood, through our ancestry. Some of it is shadow work. Some of it is things that we have to confront. But so many of our gifts, our skills, our abilities, and indeed our ability, cousin, to get in front of this camera, like Orisha said, and to talk and to share, takes a lot of energy. Not just being able to speak and articulate, but a lot of energy. And there's so much going on here with chats and buzzing and beeping and bells on. You know, it's easy to get distracted. So I think this is a gift that's passed down through our bloodline. You know, so I'm, I'm expecting us to find great orators or, or, or an author, you know, or great musicians the more we dig into our, our background. And, of course, ministry. You know, religion has been a major thing on my father's side of the family, from voodoo to, to the spiritualist church to the evangelical ministry, to the Jehovah Witnesses that many of my, my cousins are today. Religion has played a major part 
It's either been a, a, a disagreement. Uh, it's either caused some people like my mama to go blind to reality and, and not to focus where she needed to focus, you know, or it's been, you know, a benefit. I don't, I don't want to discredit, you know, what we gain from the black church, you know, what we gain through religion. Indeed, many of our ancestors called on that and relied on that. But I'm also aware of how much of the voodoo and the ifa and the Islam and the other traditions that we brought with us stand up now in our demonstration, in our practice. You know, when we think about the ancestor also, we often think about black, African, you know, but I got Middle Eastern blood too. I got a little bit of Asian blood too. Mm-hmm. And, and even as a child, that stood up in me. You know, I had mm-hmm. liberty, uh, I guess around 12 or 13 maybe 14 or 15, you know, I had a little bit of liberty to sort of decorate and I had decorated my entire room in, in Japanese. I mean, mm-hmm. from the pillow shams, the spread, the curtains, the Japanese lanterns. I told you I made out of, out of paper, uh, paper straws, you know, only to find that Asian standing up in my DNA. Um, over the course of my life, you know, maybe once a month, once every two months, I wake up usually on a Saturday for some reason, and it's just Arabic and Sufi, just just moving through me. And so I listen to Arabic music all day, like 12 hours of just Arabic music. I watch the whirling dervishes, you know, and I I burn Mm -hmm. my frankincense and myrrh. And I got a few, you know, Middle Eastern pieces in my house. I got some ancient Egyptian pieces in my house, you know. I have ancient Egyptian blood, something that I never thought possible. I used to go after people who, you know, acknowledge the ancient Egyptian background without having done a DNA test, you know. But once I did the DNA test and found out that we were descendants of Ramses III, you know, it, it, it pulled things together for me. And, again, that's the 23 and me, Oloye, uh, Chef Bougie, Orisha, Neil, that's the 23 and me. It goes back further in time, as far back as Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. So whether you want to know it or not, it's going to tell you how much Neanderthal blood you have. And mm-hmm. I hope after the previous shows that we've done that you all stop using the word caveman. Because, you know, when we think about Neanderthals and, 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 and Cro-Magnum and the other hominids, I showed you all a picture. They were very black. They were very nappy. Some of them had beards. Some of them had, had long hair. They were very, very black people. They weren't Africans, because that's the new word. But they were very, very black people. And many of us have some of that mixed in our blood. There's no such thing as a test that's going to be 100% African. N- not after the last 600 years or more of history. Because I have to include the Arabic slave trade. I have to include that. A great deal of Africans, even before the mid-Atlantic slave trade, were, be, were being taken into Southeast Asia, into the Middle East, you know, and, and, and even north into some aspects of Eurasia. So mm-hmm. don't be surprised about who you're connected to. I got Koreans in my Ancestry.com test, Koreans. I got Africans. I've got Europeans. I've got South Americans. You know, some speak Portuguese, some speak Spanish, some names I can't even pronounce in my blood test. 
And, and my ancestry narrows my indigenous footprint specifically to Mexico and that region of the U.S. that was once Mexico, because we have to think about timing, where your people were at a particular time in history. The second large place is Brazil. So I know I have mm-hmm. an ancestral connection to Brazil. And then one island that most people don't know anything about, Dominica. Not Dominican Republic, Dominica. It's a much smaller island than, than many of the other islands. I think it's at the very last island of the Caribbean. Am I right, y'all? If, if anybody knows what I'm talking about, Dominica. So look for yeah, Dominica. On Google Earth map open. Yeah, I think it's, it's Dominica. I think it's the very last Caribbean island. Arisha and Chef Buji, look for Dominica on your Ancestry.com uh, profile uh, and, and see what, what might come up. My parents have been there. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I had never heard of Dominica, honestly, until I took the Ancestry.com test. <laughs> so even as educated as I might come off, as so well-read as I might come off, I had never heard of Dominica. You know, so I was kind of surprised by that in such a specific location. You know, that was very surprising to me. Do we have any questions from our listeners, from our participants? Uh, let me go back and read some of the uh, chat. So someone else can speak if you want to while I'm looking at my chat. Uh, yeah, uh, um, if I can go ahead and um, get this off, uh, my camera is overheating. Uh, <laughs> my phone is overheating and it's sucking through charge. So I'm going to try to be as quick as I can uh, before it shuts me off again. Um, for the millennials out there that are participating with us and getting a chance to sit under these trees and soak up this knowledge, uh, it's important to understand timeline when it comes to the Tulsa burning documentary. It's a repackaging uh, because if you're if, if you like uh, uh, documentaries, then you're going to know that there's plenty of documentaries on Tulsa, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Some aren't as good. Some will go into great length, but none of them are going to actually take you down that road on how people actually dealt with and survived coming out of that, how they rebuilt it. They're not going to go into a lot of, uh, of detail on the struggle and the trauma. That's going to be left up to you in order to uh, dig into that. Know that there is a highway on top of every black community for that time period. But more importantly, look at the journey um, that they had to go through in order to get where they are now. I'm, uh, we're trying to uh, focus in on just the, uh, the Tulsa part about it. Mm-hmm. If you actually go into Oklahoma and you see where your highways are, if you see where your freeways are, your freeways are going to be plotted exactly into those areas where black communities would have actually been able to take a foothold and build back That's right. these communities. That's not by accident. You can't just accidentally plot a freeway through somebody's community. Mm-hmm. So when you go into, oh, I don't know, let's go into, uh, and we see the toll roads, the toll lanes, the highways, and look at where the communities used to be. 
and you see that there's a correlation between the, the, the freeways and where your uh, older communities were. This is not accident. You've got to go into this history. It's important to know these histories because we're the next generation that's going to have to deal with whether or not we're going to allow a freeway to go through our neighborhood or not. That's right. They will not hesitate to, to, to do this um, at all. They, they won't hesitate to do this. So I'm not saying they like the government. I'm talking about your contractors and your, your commercial industry as well, mm-hmm. not just the big bad government. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about corporations. That's right. Uh-oh, big, big businesses. They don't answer to nobody. They will impl- uh, implement eminent domain and tell you that your land isn't as valuable as you think it is, tax you for it, and then remove you from from it. That's not how it works because that's not what they do to their communities. I've driven through at least a dozen different uh, ghost towns where they used to live and moved away. But the town is still there. But there's no highway paved over. Uh, That seems a little odd to me. Yeah, that's important to note. Um, Dark Soul Jewa mentioned that earlier in the chat conversation, that, you know, roughly 50, 60 years ago, they destroyed this community that I live in, historic Treme, by putting a highway, the 10, you know, through here. And, and what once used to be uh, what we call a neutral ground, uh, you all call it a medium strip. But a neutral ground in New Orleans is a little bit wider, it had huge old trees, uh, it was your playground. Your kids could go outside and cross the street and be in the neutral ground and, and play games. And we would barbecue and we would socialize. People would bend and sell. Uh, and so they cut down all the trees, uh, you know, and, and locked in the by a concrete structure, which now allows the Highway 10 to pass over. So not only are they now attempting to sort of remake Congo Square for a municipal government building, but that's already in conversation, too. We've been discussing the tearing down of the Highway 10 for the last five years. That is going to further change this community. It's going to make it easier for the, the new residents and the new gentrifiers to come in from a black community that once upon a time that would have even had fear to come over here. And then we're going to have this governmental building, you know, in our shadow, in my direct view, with two 10-level parking garage and a 7-level parking garage where right now I'm seeing trees in Congo Square and Mahalia Jackson. So uh, Electra Vibe said, yeah, that's called redlining. And they've done it all over the country. They've done it all over the country. So, And I want to say, too, because we're running out of time, um, buy land. Buy land. I know investing is popular right now because of social media. It's okay. And don't give up when you get something that makes that transition. Don't be so quick to tell them. Keep that so that generational wealth for the future generations. Put it in your will that when I leave you this land, that this land is never to be sold. We ought to keep this land in our family, in our bloodline. I just had an uncle that passed away, and all of my cousins collectively sold off this home, great big home in Utah. 
of all places. Black family in Utah, you can't keep that foothold. I mean, I, I, I don't like Utah myself, but geez, you, you can't just let this go past. If you sell it off, yeah, you got the money in hand, but then you, you lose your actual um, placeholder. You lose that, that thing that is going to actually create revenue for generations down the line. The cash in hand isn't going to do that. So millennials, anybody around my age, younger, maybe slightly older, but uh, we'll go into that detail. This is why it's important to understand why why uh, your ancestors being venerated is, is so important is because we're next in line. We're next in line to pass this down. And if, and if we're selling off property and just kind of giving in to what's going on, we're just going to get bulldozed over like uh, the uh, um, all, all along the border. I said this the last show I was on. All along the border, they bulldozed more than 40 sacred uh, places. Including, sacred, including sacred mounds. Yeah. Sacred mounds. They bulldozed it mm-hmm. because they wanted to build a wall to keep Mexico from, like, first off, New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, California, Oregon, Utah, that's all, that's Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to get real technical, mm-hmm. I mean, their capital was New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Santa, General President Santa Ana struggled, his, struggled just to get back down before uh, the Alamo. Mm-hmm. So, it's important to understand these little details of the journey, not just the history, but the journey for uh, your, your, your grandparents, what they had to do to get to where they are now, where you're at now has nothing to do with what struggle you to get you there, to make sure that you're there. So it's important that you understand what they did, what they had to struggle through in order for you to be here. And what they sacrificed. But then what they had to sacrifice. I realized that sacrifice from my grandfather. Um, he had two homes in a town that nobody knew about, you know, but over time they grew into something else. And now all the other, rest of the family started following suit. They built up that community, and now we're going through there as a railroad. Not accident. The whole railroad that divides that town up, and now it's, gentrified and Hispanic community. I love the Hispanic community, but as soon as that happened, then all of the corporations started slowly but surely moving in and evicting those people and putting warehouses in. It's a pattern. Let's go into uh, the city of industry real quick, the city of industry in California and the city of commerce. Those were all communities before they started putting those warehouses in. They have vouchers. If you're in a LA County community, you get a voucher to move out towards the desert. A voucher. What is that going to do? That's an IOU. What do you? It blows my mind for our generation not to pick up on what's going on around us. More and more of us need to really start figuring out that they 
struggled for a reason. You can learn from the struggle. If their struggle is scaffolding, that you stand on so that you can rebuild your life and your children's life. Because what are they going to do when they, uh, they when they have to venerate you? That's right. Listen, I'm going to have to move forward because I have an appointment, even on Memorial Day. But I appreciate everyone for showing up and sharing your story, sharing your, expensive, your experience. Uh, Chef Bougie and, and Arisha, I, I love you, and I appreciate you coming in and, and taking the time to show up as a couple today for us on this special holiday. Thank you, Nephi. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nephi. I love this platform. I love it. I love being something to commune with everybody. You all are my family. So I just I love this space that you come in to, to share and to learn. I I'm just grateful for this space. Thank you. And of course Neophyte Bokur and Oye Ifawole, I appreciate you both for being present here with me. If you, if you have any closing words, please go ahead. I'm going to move forward. God bless you, everyone. With all of our being day and all the sweet things of life. So, blessings to everybody. Odavo. Odavo. Thank you so much. All is a blessing. I certainly do appreciate everybody's participation and showing up to do this show. Uh, you indeed made it better and, and brought a wealth of information and experience to the show. So I appreciate you all. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Peace and blessings. All right. Nothing to Arisa, call me later this evening. <laughs> Thank you, Blog Talk Radio. All is a blessing indeed. Congo Square. The Omus Indians, the Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival. A sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. The Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival. Congo Square, a sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. And as the colonizers came, our host, the almost Indians, they pushed aside our host. The colonizers came and pushed aside our host and introduced us in chains. And by the late 1700s, we somehow, recognizing the sacredness of Le Place de Congo, we somehow, and the how of our somehow persuasive methodologies is not clear at this moment. The how is not clear. How our persuasive methodologies worked is not clear at this moment. But nevertheless, even as slaves, we crafted and created a space where we could be free to be we. And thusly, thusly we countered the sacrilegiousness of the French 
giving great homage to our ancestors as well as giving praise and thanks to our red-blooded brothers and sisters. This is an oral libation toast to Congo Square, to Native Americans, to our ancestors who made a circle out of a square and gave us a way to stay ourselves save ourselves from the transformatory ugliness of America, which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life, which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life and celebrates death with crosses and crosses, double and triple crosses, the middle passage, the first cross, Christianity, the double cross, and capitalism, the ultimate triple coup de grace cross of our captivity. But the terror of crosses notwithstanding, we sang, we beat, we be, we was and is. Hail Congo Square. Congo, Congo Square. Our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated inside the beat of us. Inside the beat of us. Our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated, retreated inside the beat of us until we are ready to release them into a world that we recreate. A world harrowed by the beat. Be, beat, being, beating, being of black heart drums. Heart beat. Heart beat. Heart beat at this place. At this place. Be heart beat. Be we beating place in new world space. Beating, being in place in new world, preserving our ancient pace. Our dance is the God walk. Our music, the God talk. First thing we do, let's get together. Circle ourselves into community. No beginning, no end. Connected together and singing, ringing, Singing in a ring. Second, let's be original, aboriginal. Be what we were before we became what we are. Be bambula dance. Be bonza music. And sing song words which have no English translation. Third, let us remember. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. The bounce, the blood, flow, the feel, the spirit, grow, energy, must retain and pass on the essential us-ness that others want to dissipate, whip out of us. Whoa!
but no matter. No matter how much of us they prohibit. No matter how much of us they prohibit. Deep inside us is us. Deep inside us is us. Remains us inside and needs only the beat to set us free. The beat to free us. It is morning. A sun day. A feel. A feel. Without shade. But dark. Dark with the people black of us in various, various, various shades, eclipsing the sun with our elegance. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember, to beat, to be. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember, to beat, to be, beat Congo Square, be Congo Square. Remember. Remember. 